This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. I'm Lauren. I'm Alicia. And we are your hosts, as always. Welcome back to episode two, season four. And happy Women's History Month, everybody. It's March, Women's History Month. We're doing it. This time last year, we were giving a talk for Women's History Month. We were. We? Yeah, and that episode is actually recorded and we released it on Patreon. So if anybody would like to hear about the amazing art and life of Artemisia Gentileschi. And the bad girls of the Bible. You can find that on Patreon. Get on it. That was a very natural plug. We didn't <laughs> plan that at all. So <laughs> natural. So, you know, feel free to find us on Patreon. Uh, in the meantime, though, of course, we are coming to you as we normally do every fortnight with some new and interesting and perhaps not entirely different from the last episode's yeah. content. Okay, because last time we were with Marie Laveau, we were down in New Orleans, we were talking about snakes and voodoo and magic, and this time, where are we? Well, look, we're talking about a very different person with a okay. very different biography, but we are going back to the South. Back we're to go- the south. We're going back. In what century? So we're going to be oh, actually not too, too long after Marie Laveau's time. Oh, because yeah. what Marie Laveau died in the late 1880s, mm. didn't she? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Or the early 1880s, something like that. I feel, I feel you should know because I, should, I feel you did the episode. I her. should know that and I feel like that is correct. <laughs> okay, let's go with that. <laughs> I could get my notes up but eh. isn't it funny how quickly you forget information? Well, I, I'm pretty sure that's correct because that's what I've written in my notes. Oh, good. So, I'm going to um, trust that more than I trust my memory because I good. was trying to – I had to like fill out a child protection form thing because I teach – people under 18 and I had to put in all of my addresses from the last 10 years. Oh, that's a lot of addresses. And, oh my God. I was like, I should know. I like lived in these places for many years. I should definitely still remember like the numbers of the houses and I could not for the life. I had to Google them all. I had to go on Google you Street. You did live view. in quite a few different ones. I though. move a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But I was absolutely appalled by my memory. <laughs> I feel like I maybe have some memory problems it's you a don't issue. it's fine the joys of renting you're always gonna forget yeah. but no i'm pretty sure that this is when uh, Marie okay. Laveau died. but uh today's episode the figure that we're gonna be talking about she came into the world so actually here we go in my notes very specifically oh, yeah. i have written that marie Laveau died on the 15th of june 1881 Whoa, why didn't you say that before because <laughs> i didn't read that until just then <laughs> And today's deviant woman came into the world on the 15th of April, 1894, which is not really portentous or connected in any particular way. But we can make it so. We can find connections. But I thought I'd let you know. So it's only a decade later. That's right. So today's deviant woman, she's born into the world only a decade 
after Marie Laveau dies, but into a very different world. And I love how we're still doing this thing where we pretend like our audience don't know who we're talking about, even though the name is on their It's on the banner. It's on the thing. Ad, it's on the banner. You it's know. the picture. They can see it all. It's Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith. So Bessie Smith, who is sadly, I think, not the household name she should be. This is what I think because when I looked her up, when you told me that you were doing Bessie Smith, I didn't initially know who she was. And mm. then I did a Google and I was like, why yeah. don't I know who she is? Why is she not alongside so many of the other? Well, no, I will stop and I will allow you to continue. Uh, okay, fine. All right, great. Actually, you're going to back that I'm up. I'm going to reel, yeah, reel yeah, myself back. Sure. Well, because I'm assuming what you're going to say is some of the greatest American singers. Yes. Well, I was going to say, like, where is she next to Ella Fitzgerald and, you know. Billie Holiday. And, yeah. And I think that, for one thing, she came before both of those singers. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they're they're really jazz singers. So they're really tied up with that idea of jazz. That was one of the things, I think. She's a blues singer. Yeah. So Bessie Smith is specifically a blues singer and she came to be known as the empress of the blues wow um and you always you need a title don't you that is a good we've had some good titles on this podcast last episode we had voodoo yeah exactly empress of blues i like it i feel like if i die without like getting a nice little what would you be i don't know sleepy the the sleeping (laughs) alicia the the sleep no no no. you'd need like the narcoleptic (laughs) Uh, the, em- the Empress of Narcolepsy. Yeah. Something along those lines. I yeah. don't know. What would you be? Um, um, yeah, all right. You keep thinking about <laughs> it. All right. So, but if we die without them, then we've failed at the life. The Queen of Indecision. Oh, that's an excellent one. But you decided on it too quickly for it to be true. Oh. So some listeners, I think, might very well be familiar with her. Um, she sort of has come back into popular culture over the years and she has definitely been acknowledged. She's, she's definitely not completely forgotten to mm-hmm. the history books. There was an HBO biopic made of her life oh. back in 2015, which starred Queen Latifah. Really? As Bessie. And I remember watching it. What was it called? Oh, I think it was just called Bessie. Oh, I'm pretty sure it was just called Bessie. And that's actually how I found out about this woman. Mm. I can't, I know I watched it because I know that's why I know who she is, but I can't remember if it was any good or not. It won Emmys though, so it must have been good. Do you think that she's, both of us didn't know who she was, but do you think that's maybe just because maybe she's not as well known in Australia and she's much more famous in an American context well, or do you think she's just fallen through the cracks? I think where... she did fall through the cracks for mm. quite some time and she, she certainly has never been completely forgotten but she doesn't have that same sort of, I suppose, instantly recognisable clout that somebody mm. like Billie Holiday or yep. Ella Fitzgerald does. I mean those are names that you know. Yeah. We'll get into her life and maybe it will tell us some of the answers oh, to course. these questions. I hope so. Let us find is out. Is that why we're here? That is why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have guessed? So... She was born Elizabeth Smith. That's where we get the Bessie it's, from. It's a, I imagine there's 17,000 Elizabeth Smiths in the world. <laughs> Let's be honest. I think there probably are. <laughs> yes, I feel like it's a fairly common name. So maybe uh, changing it to Bessie yeah. is, is quite I really like helpful. Bessie as the like, diminutive of Elizabeth as it's well. It's great. Yeah. And it's also like adorable. It is. Too. It is. It's a nice, cute name. But also has that air of authoritativeness because of like Queen Bess, you know, oh, Queen Elizabeth yeah. was yeah, yeah. called Queen Bess yeah. quite often. I see. So it's like authoritative and strong, but also really like adorable. It's a good one. Yeah. It's a good one. I like it. Mm. And she was born in Chattanooga. 
Chattanooga. I can't even oh, say it. Chattanooga. She was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga, I knew you were going to do that. Of course yep. I did. Chattanooga Choo Choo. I can't even, <laughs> I can't even say it. I, I stumbled used to, over I it. I did a, a, a dance routine to that when I was a tiny in calisthenics. And <laughs> a tiny is a, a age range of from like two to five. Oh, so. my God. Adorable. Yeah. Uh, you should have been called <laughs> Bessie. At the time. In an, Bessie the in, tiny. In an, in an adorable the way. The least tiny of the tinies. And to be honest, in her lifetime, she was probably the most popular blues singer of her era. She was definitely the most successful. Really? Yes. So I don't I know who she is. Well, I don't know, but we'll, we'll, we'll find out. We'll okay. find out. So the Although, six... Sorry, I'm just having a memory and I feel like there might have been a poster for her up at my swing dancing class the other day. So random. Maybe. Maybe. Well, not random. They have posters of lots of famous jazz and blues singers. So. Okay. So (laughs) maybe. Maybe. I just just had a flash of memory. (laughs) It just came into my mind's eye. Well, success was uh, a long way off of Bessie's upbringing. She um, didn't have a particularly easy upbringing by any stretch of the imagination because essentially she grew up in poverty Mm. in Tennessee. So she was one of seven siblings. Mm. Her father, who was a Baptist minister, died not long after she was born. And then her mother died when she was still only a child, basically, as did two of her brothers. Oh, shit. And so she and her other siblings essentially were reared by her older sister, Viola. And that's a lot of responsibility. It is. Or in some versions, her aunt as well. Her aunt's mm. also on the scene. But essentially, her sister is the one that is kind of the most mother like figure mm-hmm. to her now. Is she much older than her? Do you know? I don't know exactly how much older mm. she was, but I do. She was obviously old enough. Essentially old enough. Hopefully. Because she was also old enough to be out working. Okay. Because, but of back course. Back then, that could have been like. 12 let's be honest yeah so in this kind of situation there's very little opportunity for anyone to really go to get an institutionalized education Mm. to go off to school basically but that doesn't mean that she didn't have an education of the world Uh of course and one thing that she would have been very well schooled in was singing oh as a beginning point so Chattanooga at the time had a very vibrant musical culture and this kind of musical culture was tied up very much with the songs of workers and labourers in the district. The Chattanooga choo-choo didn't come from nowhere, Alyssa. That's right. So (laughs) her sister would have been old enough to be working as a washerwoman and to be working with her aunt as a washerwoman as well. And so the songs of the laundresses would have been very influential, the women at their work, and they would have been singing popular spiritual songs yeah religious songs as well as work songs when you say washer women are we talking about women who are washing in that tradition i like when you say washer women i have a mental image of women like in a disney-esque cartoon by the river with their washboards singing along or are we talking industrialized laundries where it is hot and steamy and they're working you know 12 14 hour days and the conditions are terrible yes that's Probably what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, there's no idealised beating your washing down by the river. No. It's it's laundress. Yes, it is. And also if you weren't working in like sort of an industrialised 
laundry, then it was domestic work. Mm. So you would have been doing that for a domestic mm. employer anyway. At the time, Chattanooga's population was actually 40% African-American. Yeah, okay. And most of those African-Americans were employed in labouring and domestic work. Yeah. So it would have been for your domestic employer if it wasn't mm. for a larger company. But that also meant that there was no shortage of fodder for these work songs and, and spiritual songs as well that were also coming out, out of the gospel singing mm. and out of the churches. Mm-hmm. So the kind of blues that Bessie would end up singing at the peak of her career had really only started to develop around the turn of the century. And these songs that she would have heard, you know, basically just on the street, you know, in her community, people singing all the time, undeniably are what fed into the development of blues as its own sort of musical genre and style. And I imagine they have a lot of folk traditions and... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of where that blues rose up out of this milieu, I suppose, of community voices. Yeah, yeah. And... Bessie obviously was hugely influenced by this. Now, she also would have been fairly well influenced by travelling minstrel shows that came through town. So travelling minstrel shows were enormous. You're rolling your eyes. No, I'm not rolling my eyes. My eyes are going very wide with a sense of, oh, what type of well, yes. shows are I we think, talking about I here? Think, <laughs> yes. I mean, we've definitely, I mean, the, the term minstrel has become definitely associated with blackface, but that is not by and large what minstrel yeah. refers to. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, minstrel is a medieval term. Well, it is. It's really just a travelling singer. Entertainer. Tra- yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the minstrel shows that came through town weren't blackface shows, yeah. although, you know, those did exist. But in this particular term, we're talking about vaudevillian shows Yes, that were a mixture of comedy and dance and song and they would predominantly have male casts mm-hmm. and they'd turn up into town in a parade, basically. Yeah. Like know, your old carnivale of old. Precisely. And they'd have their pamphlets yeah. and they'd be, you know, handing those out and showing and singing for you, letting mm. you know what you can come and see. And they roll their cart up into the town square and set up there. Like you can imagine the stage. Well, I can because we have a bunch of them on our streets at the moment here in Adelaide. And that's true. <laughs> basically, that is what Adelaide is at the moment because of the fringe. <laughs> yeah. But even if you couldn't afford to actually go to the shows, if you couldn't afford your 25 cents mm. to go in and see the show, you'd still get a sense of it from what you got to see in the parade yeah, yeah, and what yeah, you got yeah. to see tumbling and out And I imagine the heaps of it is that sort of advertising. So they're doing stuff on the streets yeah. to gain attention so they can sell you the tickets. Precisely. Yeah. So Bessie still, even if she wasn't able to go to the shows, yeah. she still would have been seeing this coming through. And this would have had a huge effect on her and also a huge effect on her wanting to become a mm. performer. Now, I mentioned that they predominantly had male casts and because this is, you know, sort of the end of the 1800s, we're talking about the start of the 1900s and predominantly performing was a man's vocation. But there were also a lot of shows, maybe a lot is a bit of a stretch, but there also (laughs) were shows that were produced by women. Produced by women? Correct. Yes. Like not just starring a woman, but but produced produced by by women. women? Correct. No. One of these shows that was very popular at the time around about when Bessie was a child was the Black Paddy Musical Comedy Company. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yes. I Um, would buy tickets to that. And they were pretty much one of the most popular female uh, performance troops of the time. And so Bessie may well have, I mean, I can't say she did, but she may well have also seen this as a sort of a precedent for her own performance career as well. So was this a troop of women, like a group of women? Yes. Like like the original girl group, like touring? 
I don't know if you could say it was the original girl group <laughs> touring, but they were shows that... The Spice Girls? Yes, they were the Spice Girls. <laughs> of the 1900s? If you want to think of them as the Spice Girls of the early 1900s, okay. you can. Good. You go for Thank that. Thank you. Right. Now I am. I'm going to leave you with that. <laughs> but sometime around sort of 10 or 12, Bessie, perhaps emboldened by what the she'd Spice seen Girls. around her. <laughs> the Spice Girls. Girl power. Or maybe just because she didn't want to go into laundry work yeah. like her sister, yeah. uh, she took two busking on the streets. Oh, cool. Now, obviously, this is not the safest or easiest thing to do. And, yeah, I'm just thinking, so what year is this? This is like turn of the century, right? Yeah, turn so of the century. Most girls who are working on the street are probably either adorable flower or match sellers or they're selling something else. Well, I don't know if that's entirely the case of the community that she grew up in. Okay. So she's busking yeah, around. This isn't Victorian this London. This isn't Victorian <laughs> London. You've got a real Victorian London vibe going on here. Yeah. But this is within pretty much, I mean, the only places she would have been allowed to busk would have been within her own community. She's not going to, mm, we're in the world of segregation. Yeah, yeah. She's not going to be allowed yeah. to stand outside the local white shop Mm -hmm. and sing on the corner there right so where she could sing would have been very much demarcated by the politics Mm -hmm. of the time and she wasn't entirely on her own either so her older brother Andrew could play the guitar and he accompanied her while she sang and danced that's probably for the best which is definitely for the best (laughs) so doing this would have been pretty formative in her learning how to be a performer because obviously I mean these streets would have been bustling Mm. busy noisy Full of workers. So she's got to really learn how to project. Yes. Get that diaphragm working. Yeah. She's get over the sound of all those carriages and work hammers clanging on the frames for this new city that they're building. skyscrapers. They're building constantly. It's growing. Everything's happening. But this is it, right? She's got to learn how to compete for your attention in amongst what's going on. And there would have been a bunch of other street performers as well. The organ grinders and the hoop Twellers. You're still being really Victorian. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. Everything I know about street performance is about Victorian street performance. Is she selling Penny Dreadfuls on the corner? Yes, no, she yeah. is. Yeah. But one of her other brothers as well, Clarence, also had a penchant for performing. Mm-hmm. And the minstrel troops and shows that they'd seen together also inspired him. So he left to join a travelling troupe of entertainers. Which would so have been a very musical, talented family. Absolutely. And this would have been a huge blow to Bessie because she would have been oh, jealous yes. as fuck. <laughs> of course. Like, you fucking prick. I yes. have to stay here just by virtue of my womanhood and you get to be, go off and be an adventurous man yeah. and travel with your fucking troop. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Go. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not all bad because he may well have helped her out. In the future. Oh. We'll see. So he he disappeared off and she would have been like, oh, I want to be a professional performer too. Mm. So she began auditioning in amateur vaudeville competitions. And it wasn't until she was about 18 that she finally would get her chance to move into the mm. world of performing. So she's been sort of like progressing just yep. – Kind of on the streets, nurturing her talent mm-hmm. through her yep. teen years rather than working in the laundry. So does that mean that she's like bringing in enough money through her busking that she's able to legitimately say to her sister, like, no, I'm, I'm cool here on the streets. Like, this is fine. Yep. I don't have to go into the laundry. Absolutely. Because, I mean, wow. the whole thing is because their parents had died when she was very young and even if they were in the care of their aunt, 
then the onus is still on them mm. to bring in money to help mm. support the family. So, as you said before, it doesn't matter what age you are. Childhood mm. is <laughs> child is a not fanciful a, thing. Not a concept. That's not a concept <laughs> at the time. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, you're just a tiny worker. Yeah. So um, A better worker because you're cheap and you fit into small holes. And that's right. We can send you down mines mm. and shit. But that's, again, <laughs> not the world that we're in at the moment. <laughs> But, yeah, she and her her brother certainly were making enough to, I guess, justify Mm. that this was how they were going to contribute to the family. So there are varying accounts of how she kind of got her break into performing proper, I suppose. And some suggest that it was her brother Clarence who, on returning through town with uh, one of the minstrel shows, organised for Bessie to audition for the troupe. Other accounts say she was noticed by one of the show's star singers, mm-hmm. who is Ma Rainey, who I'll tell you a bit more about in a minute. Okay. And that Ma Rainey may have been the one who championed to have Bessie included in the show. And then the most outrageous of the stories I is... I like this, these ones. These ones are good. Is that Ma Rainey actually kidnapped <laughs> Bessie into the show. Wow. But that idea has been disputed oh, okay. a few times. That's probably for the best. But this Kidnapping is never good. It's never good. <laughs> it's never good to kidnap someone. Even if it's for a delightful variety vaudeville show. Exactly. And you find out that you don't have to pick pockets in, a, in an Oliver type fashion. You can just sing on a stage. But regardless of the truth of these claims, she was hired into the show starring Ma Rainey. And she was hired as a dancer, not a singer, because the troupe already had Mm. singers like Ma Rainey, who was a very well-known performer at the time. In fact, she also has a title. Guess what her title is? The Princess of Pop. No. (laughs) That's Kylie Minogue, isn't it? Or is she the Queen of Pop? Who's Madonna? Surely Madonna's the Queen of Pop. Yeah, then I guess Kylie's the... Princess. I don't know. Anyway, Ma Rainey is the... She's the mother of the blues. The mother of the blues. Which is a pretty fucking great title. I should have guessed. That's actually have. easy. I should have guessed that. Pretty easy. So uh, she was about 10 years older than Bessie and she'd been on the circuit for a while. And as I said, she was pretty popular and very well known. And she toured with the Rabbit Foot Minstrels. Oh. I know. Great name. <laughs> uh, and then later she formed her own group with her husband and that group was just called Rainy and Rainy. Rainy and Rainy. Rainy and Rainy. No, that's got a nice ring to it. it I like does. it. It's charming. And it doesn't involve severing feet from rabbits. <laughs> For luck. For luck, which makes it okay. <laughs> now, while there's no proof that Rainy actually had anything to do with helping Smith further her singing, it's a pretty good guesstimation that Rainy was very, very... Guesstimation? Sorry. Can I not say you that? You could say that. I like it. No, okay. it's just, I think it's fun. <laughs> All right. It's a pretty good guesstimation that uh, Rainey would have been pretty influential in yeah. Smith developing not just a vocal style, but also a stage persona. Mm. So, whether or not Rainey helped her directly, she was hugely influential. Yeah. Or well, even if she's just standing in the wings watching her perform night after night, you're going to pick up a lot. Yes. Especially if this is somebody that you idolize and project your own fantasies onto. Yeah. And of course, because you have to remember that Bessie, throughout her whole life, she never had any singing training proper. And even many of the singers around her who did grow up through obscurity and come into the spotlight through obscurity did go on to have training all yeah, the right. same. Yeah. They did further their vocal mm. range through training, which is certainly what someone like Ma Rainey would have done. But Bessie never did. Mm. So she basically mm. just learned. Like ever in her career. Yeah, she wow. basically just learned 
on the go and developed her own style. So within a year of working in the troupe, Smith had already started to develop, as I said, that own style and her own act as well. And she got an apprenticeship at the 81 Theatre in Atlanta and had a brief marriage to a man named Earl. But <laughs> brief, like maybe a year and so brief. And then he just disappears? Yeah, so brief. I don't know much about it. So much. How often does this happen? Honestly, I feel like every second story we tell, we're just like, and then she married some guy for like a hot second and, yes. and then didn't. And I feel like maybe it's just because everybody's really keen to have sex. So they're just like, oh, okay, I guess we need to get married. And, and then, then we'll move on. And then they're like, oh. Yeah. Well, but I feel like nah, that's I've, done. I feel like I've missed what out on an have? opportunity. I feel like I should have just married more people randomly earlier and then divorce and them. have a string of ex-husbands How and good then would that be? you have because nobody cares about your string of ex-boyfriends they're no. just like well, that's normal but if you're like yes i have seven ex-husbands then they're like wow you must be a very interesting person slash maybe a little bit not easy to live with but <laughs> and did you murder anyone? yeah <laughs> well you know what it's not too late to start so you do have a husband i've started i've made a start <laughs> Uh, sorry, Josh. Anyway, so <laughs> this is not admissible in the court of law as evidence. Well, no, it is. It is. It's just a joke. It's a joke. Or jokes. So about the same time that she was performing in chorus lines and in shows, she was working across what was known as the Theatre Owners Booking Association or the TOBA. Now, this was an association that was basically an allegiance of theatres and venues that were owned by African-Americans mm. and they catered exclusively obviously to black audiences because of course as we mentioned legal segregation yeah but they weren't exactly a, a haven of sort of like solidarity or support oh um, no unfortunately despite but, the shared yes racism they're all experiencing the structural and but i think as we've seen in many 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 examples throughout history just because you're all poor and yeah and oppressed together doesn't, doesn't mean you mean, like each other doesn't mean or, you, or it's it's you're suffering is something that will bring you together yeah exactly so they generally paid far far less than the white vaudevillian shows not just because they got paid less but because they chose to pay their performers less oh. and they were generally worse for touring arrangements so no one actually called it the toba it was Referred to by most black performers as tough on black asses. Oh, oh. <laughs> that, that was what they referred to it as. But regardless, this was where Smith started to make a name for herself. So shortly after that first miscellaneous marriage to mm-hmm. Earl broke up, um, <laughs> she headlined a show called Liberty Bell. And then in the ni- in 1920, she moved to Philadelphia. So by now, oh, well, that makes sense. Liberty Bell, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. I, there's a connection. There is a connection. You sure. Know. So she's a consummate performer. I suppose we've moved a little bit out of the South now yeah. as well. Philadelphia no, can't really no longer in the South. Call that the South, can you? It's more the never eat. It's the East. It's the Northeast. It's the Northeast. Yeah. But we were in the South for a while, <laughs> right? And we'll probably go there again. So as I said, she's now she's a consummate performer. She knows what she's doing. And she's the kind of performer that's really captivating and engaging. She's already started to really develop this persona that People just loved. Mm. Well, she might seem new on the stage, but she has been doing this for a very long time. Like if she's doing this on the street for like six years before and compete, like you said, competing with traffic and other street performers and whatnot, like she would have to develop a sense of a stage presence and a persona. And also I guess that's just something that comes really naturally to certain people. Mm. You know, like there Mm. are some people, I remember I had a drama teacher once who told me that stage presence can't be taught. You just either have it or you don't. I love 
of it. It's so pretentious. So pretentious. But also really true. Yeah. Hey? Like that's the thing, isn't it? Because, you I mean, you can teach anybody to do anything mm. essentially, but whether or not there's an innate talent in how they approach doing that particular task, I mean, that's different to just being yeah. learnt a yeah. thing. Yeah. So for her, it was very much uh, part of who she was and she was the kind of performer who would go out into the audience, sort of pick an audience member and sort of sing to them intimately mm-hmm. and one report tells how audience members would often feel compelled to get up and follow her back onto the stage <laughs> after she'd sung to them sort of almost as if oh my God, they like were under her spell exactly what? because this is the kind of intimate performance wow. she would give and the music that she she sung and the way that she sung tapped back into that sort of working class those roots from where she came. Mm. And the stories in the songs that she sang were stories of, you know, of struggle, of love, of heartbreak, which is all, of course, the blues. Yeah, which yeah. Is, the blues is really forming itself into, into a genre and a style now. And it was still the early days of the form and she mainly sang standards, which pretty much everybody did. So these are the just sort of like the normal, I guess, because back in the day before recorded music, people would sell sheet music and you'd just buy the song as sheet music and then you could perform that if you wanted to, right? Exactly right, yeah. So sheet music was widely available for um, popular songs of the day. I think you usually bought them in like furniture stores for some reason. (laughs) Um, That's where you got them from. And each singer, really what it was about was it's about each singer sort of making their stamp mm. on that song and yep. making it their own. And Bessie sang in a really powerful way with this deep contralto voice and she utterly boomed it out. Mm. In fact, she often didn't even use a microphone. She'd step away from her microphone. Wow. She sort of disdained microphones like she thought they were kind of like a little bit for the week. But again, she's been on the streets this whole time. so Exactly. And those sitting up in the very back of the theatres or the tent shows felt like she was standing in front of them yeah. singing to her. This oh. was the kind of powerful you know big when voice you hear that she voice, had. That's the kind of voice that causes the hairs on the back of your neck to raise up, isn't it? It's the kind that gives you shivers yeah, down your whole absolutely. spine. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, you can listen to her music. It still exists, but we'll get mm-hmm. to that as mm-hmm. the story progresses. So she's a young, attractive, talented woman. Um, she's attracting a fair share of admirers. Of course. Uh, there are reports that start to come out of some pretty rowdy love affairs. Oh. She liked to drink. Yeah, well, she's a blues singer. But sadly, maybe like a little bit too much. Yeah. And she'd often get into actual physical fights with her lovers. Like proper fisticuffs. She was no shrinking violet. Yeah. And it was. I mean, as long as that's two way, you know? Like, or are we talking. I think often she was the one who instigated the physical fights. Okay. And this did lead to some. (laughs) Did lead to some fisticuffs. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's feisty, and we'll see. But it was while she was living and performing in Philadelphia that she met a man named Jack Gee. And Jack was working as a security guard at the time and they became involved in quite a serious relationship. Oh, yes. Now, just put Jack to the side. Okay. So I want to go back to talking a bit more about the music industry. Yeah, sure. Because we've mentioned sheet music, right? Because what year are we in now? Are we sort of in the 1910s? Yes, we now? are. Yeah, yeah. We're in the 1910s. We're getting towards the 1920s. Yeah, so recorded music is starting to become something that's more accessible, I assume. Yeah, absolutely. So as you can imagine, I mean, records are a luxury item, Mm. you know. 
Um, and they're out of the reach of many poor and working class African Americans for, yeah, for a long, long absolutely. time. And not just African Americans, poor and working yeah, class everybody. Any, anybody's, everybody and anybody's. But by the turn of the century, prices began to drop and they're becoming much more affordable. And I also imagine that the introduction of electricity would have made the technology mm. speed up a lot because before that you had the kind of cranked yeah, gramophones. Yeah, gramophones yeah. But now I imagine this is just me totally making assumptions from various pools of knowledge that I have that you would start to get turntables that are electrified and technology would be increasing and making things more accessible. And as we know, as things are produced in higher quantities, generally the price comes down, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yes. Good. Yeah. Cool. Good summation, pretty much. <laughs> We're still a long way off of the beautiful, like, blore-punked record that I have at home that I've taken apart because it's not working at the moment and oh. I'm trying to make it work. And if anybody knows anything, and I called this guy <laughs> and he was so fucking unhelpful, he refused to help me. I was like, oh. hi, I've got, like, a 1961 blore-punked Florida stereo. And he was like, I can't help you. Oh. And I was like, oh. And he was like, no, nah, not going to help you. And, oh. And I was like, well, okay. Maybe he doesn't want the responsibility of being, That's like. basically what he said. He was like, no, I fixed too many of them and then they break again yeah and i was like would you know anyone who can help me and he was like nope no and i was like well fine fuck you i'll fix it myself oh no so i've taken it apart i think it's the motor alicia anyway no it's fine lauren i totally i'm an i'm an electrician (laughs) you are a mechanic i totally know what i'm doing you are wearing a mechanic's headscarf right now true so Anyway, so let's just uh, forget about that. If anybody does know anything about blow punk florida stereos and how to fix them, please get in contact. Anyway. Anyway. So not only have prices dropped, but what this means as well is that a whole new market Mm -hmm. has opened up. Oh, yeah. The demand for African-American, specifically female blues singers, really started to become more quote-unquote mainstream. Yeah. Because now, you know, African-Americans were buying more music and this was leading to record companies seeing dollar signs, Uh of course, as they do. So it was that in 1923, a talent scout for Columbia Records scouted Bessie out and signed her on to Columbia. Oh. I know. Whoa. Pretty good. Columbia, well, well. So Columbia. Columbia had started a uh, race records. Oh, no. I know. I'm doing air quotes. Oh, God, of course they did. (laughs) Quote, unquote, race records series. And Smith was the first artist to be released under this new umbrella. Uh And these were very, very popular, very successful series of records that were tapping into that new African-American market that had now were able to buy these records. So Columbia wanted to sort of like put Bessie out in the world and dub her the queen of the blues. Yeah. This is what they kind of had. So this is where her title comes from? Columbia gifted her her Well, they, yeah, they wanted to call her queen of the blues, but she ended up just Because she went with empress. Well, the media called her empress of the blues. So this is kind of what started to get bandied around and that's pretty much just what stuck. Mm. It's actually better because it's a little bit more organic. Oh, yeah. Than Columbia just saying, this is what you're called. Yeah. We're defining this persona for you. Yes. Yeah. Whereas Empress of the Blues is actually a bit more of an organic mm-hmm. title that stuck to her because and this more is powerful. Yeah. And because this is genuinely how people saw her. So yeah. it's kind of like she was given an upgrade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the public when yeah. they heard her. They were like, oh, no, no, no. No, Queen, that's not sufficient. No, she's an Empress. Yeah. So her first record was called Downhearted Blues and it was a hit. And the song, of course, was a standard, as we said. Although it must also be said that Bessie did go on to write a lot of her own songs as well. 
But this version of Downhearted Blues was so popular that it sold a reported 780,000 copies in 1923, which was unheard of considering it wasn't a new or unrecorded song. (laughs) Recordings already existed by other artists, but Bessie's version fucking soared. Yeah, right. And so she's like... She's the Billboard charts wouldn't have existed yet, but if they did, mm. she would have been number one consecutively for a long time. I Absolutely, imagine. she shot to the mm. top, and she began touring across theaters and in tent shows. And I mentioned tent shows before, and now tent shows again kind of come back to that very carnivalesque kind of idea. Um, they were often set up in the outlying parts of cities if there wasn't exclusively black theater to perform in as mm. well. And for a while, in the late sort of eighteen hundreds. Uh, some white theatres did offer seats in specifically coloured, quote-unquote, coloured sections, quote-unquote, the coloured balcony Yeah, uh, often was the section. But it was usually preferable to set up a tent outside of the city mm. so that you could have your own performance there yeah. outside of sort of the rigmarole. And then we don't have to deal with the riffraff. Deal with all of that shit, yeah. And she never actually went on to tour internationally or even across the whole of the mm. US like many of her contemporaries did, but... At this point in time, she had become the highest paid black entertainer of her day. Really? Now, not male or female, just, just entertainer. entertainer. Wow. So she hit the fucking big time. And so her order, because you mentioned that like records were suddenly accessible, I guess, to like to black folk. But for the first time, I, I mean, was her audience mixed like were white people listening to it is this is this a story of yeah as happens over and over and over again in the record industry where white people kind of get turned on to black music and then end up appropriating that music because they really enjoy what they're hearing or is it that she's really just exclusively popular with african-american listeners for the most part african-american listeners were her biggest audience Mm. but they're definitely also she did slip over into mm. that again so many air quotes in this episode into yeah. that mainstream yeah white yeah i guess sort of popularity mm. but the majority of the audience is to have those form. numbers is really incredible i would have assumed yeah. that you'd need a mixed audience to get those numbers but well like- I, in terms of buying well okay so this is the thing right in terms of buying her albums Yes, probably Mm. more mixed. But in terms of the shows, Mm -hmm. it would have still been much more segregated. Yeah, yeah. So, and the shows are where she made her money because Columbia actually notoriously underpaid her her royalties. (laughs) And she didn't really make anywhere near as much money out of Columbia as she could (sighs) or should have. She made most of her money. right. From touring. From touring Mm. and live performance. So... Over the next four years, she would be with Columbia and release uh, multiple albums with them. And Smith sales reportedly over those four years reached six million records. Holy shit. So I guess this does suggest that, yes, the people purchasing the records were a much broader section of society. And it was shortly after the release of her first album that she and Jack, remember Jack? Yeah, you you put him aside for a bit. Let him come back in. They got married. Okay, so they've just sort of been hanging out, having a good time until now, and now they're actually married. Yeah, now they're married. She's a star. Oh, my God, this is so exciting. Yay! Yay! How romantic. But she wasn't loved by everyone. No. Not everyone. Well, it's hard to please everybody, Alicia. It is. So despite her time sort of learning the ropes with Rainey, she was still 
what was referred to as a bit rough or a bit low class by many people. And she wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She apparently she would stop singing to spit on the side of the stage if she needed to. Um, She started writing her own songs and her songs were very much about you know, that man's trash, leave him behind. Uh-huh. Obviously in a very coded way. This was not just the way she said yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But songs about, you know, like if that lover's no good, get yourself a new lover. Um, <laughs> so she's telling it like it is. She's telling it like it is. She's, and she's been real. Yeah, and she's not afraid of singing about topics that when you know, not considered very nice or very ladylike. Yeah, yeah. So these songs that she wrote for herself were really empowered, sexually liberated. And this, of course, again, is part of that blues. Yeah. Well, I was going to say blues is sexy. Yeah, definitely. And when it comes out of Bessie, even it's more so. fucking sexy. Even more so. Yeah. So this kind of rough persona that she had didn't stop her from being a headline act. And uh, she fronted her own show with a troupe of dancers and singers and she toured with them in her own custom-built railroad carriage for her <laughs> troupe of 40-plus performers oh, and Oh, what group. a dream. Oh, my God. What a yeah. dream. So What, what we, a dream. What we also have to realise at this point too is that she is now – she's a bona fide businesswoman, right? Yeah. Because, yes, she's getting – that piddly and she's got So she's got Columbia there. Yeah. But I guess really in much the same way as probably the music industry has moved back to today to yeah. is that the records that you sell are, or people hear are really just marketing for your live shows yeah. and the yeah. money comes from the live show. Yeah. So it's all about how you manage that yep. connection and how you kind of make the most of people hearing your records so that you can then get them yeah. to your show. And this is her show. She's the boss. So Columbia are not involved with the- Not with the touring. No. Yeah. So she's the one who will do – she's the one who's doing the hiring and the firing. She's the one that needs to contact the next town to mm-hmm. see if there's a venue to book ahead. She's the one who needs to get a permit to set up in the mm-hmm. park if there's not a venue. Mm-hmm. She's the one and who's in charge. this is emails, so that must have been a pain. <laughs> must have been a real shit. How did she even know who to call? She would have had to go through the – Phone books of cities she wasn't even in. I'm sure she was had contacts. I'm sure she had a Rolodex. Was a phone book a thing? I don't even know I how these think. things work. I don't know how anyone contacted anybody. I don't, she must have had like an insider's Rolodex full of people's phone numbers that I didn't, she got from somewhere. And then she'd attach the message to a pigeon yes. and send it off. I don't know. She'd call them from a street corner. But I guess shows like the Black Paddy shows from, you know, back in the end of the 1800s would have been, you know, paved the way mm-hmm. for someone like Bessie Smith to actually be her own producer. Because you've already got that tradition of the travelling vaudevillian shows rolling yeah. up into town, yep. setting up, then yep. deconstructing and moving yep. on again. And especially the ones that were run by women. So Mm, there's that mm. precedent there for what she's doing. And she was becoming so popular that newspapers at the time reported that her shows were packed out, lines were down the street, people were trying to cram into sold-out shows, other people refused to leave her shows until she sang again, demanding more. (laughs) Like she was just the absolute it girl. She was huge. But things between her and Jack weren't always smooth sailing. So what was his job again? He had been a security guard. Yeah, so okay. I he, so he's a security guard with this fucking megastar. Yeah, so I think he stayed on working for her. And he was he the like money. part of her security team? I'm not sure, but I can imagine, I mean, if you're married to a security guard, then he's kind of your your default your bodyguard, bodyguard, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, much like Kevin Costner and Whitney and Houston. I... No, stop it. Um <laughs> 
You could. You, I, you try and hit that note. No, go no on. way. You do we it. already heard that it was a very, very poor attempt. <laughs> we shall not go any further than that. But the interesting thing about their relationship was that they both, ha- I guess it was an open relationship, but not necessarily like one that they had agreed to have <laughs> as an open relationship. So they relationship. were both just philandering. Yeah, there was a lot of philandering. And uh, Smith's philandering didn't just sort of... Involve men. Just didn't involve only men. Mm-hmm. She was openly bisexual. Really? And when I say openly, I mean she didn't just walk out on stage and say, yo, yeah, I'm guys, bisexual. I have an announcement. But by openly but bisexual. Like people, I guess people around her knew. Exactly. Mm. Jack knew. Um, her closest friends knew. Mm. Obviously the ladies that she was yeah. having, <laughs> yeah. they knew. You know, sort of as openly as you could be in the 1920s. Yeah. But Jack knew and he, I guess for want of a better word, tolerated it. Uh-huh. Um, though he didn't particularly condone it. I wonder it. if he meant felt less threatened by the idea of her having affairs with women than he would have. But she's having affairs she with affair, both men yeah. and she women. She had affairs with she? men as well. Yeah. yeah. She probably had affairs with many men and women At simultaneously. Yeah. Of course she did. I she's would, a rock star. I would not put that, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's a rock star. But Jack wasn't really in a in any sort of moral position to judge mm. her because he was having his own affairs on the Let's side. Let's be honest, it's the 1920s. Everyone's having affairs. Everybody was having affairs. Well, you know, this is the thing, right, because it was the 1920s that we're getting into now and this is the jazz age. And the blues were sort of changing now, you know, that the blues had kind of really had its moment mm-hmm. because the jazz age had begun in earnest and that interest in the blues – was in that mainstream already in decline. Mm-hmm. The The Depression hit in 1929 and the stock market crashed and this is sort of where things start to change a bit for Smith because this is also the year that she had had enough of her relationship with Jack mm. and the last straw apparently between them was when Jack had an affair with another singer called Gertrude Saunders and so that was it. Mm-hmm. Smith was done and she left him. Of course, not that she was morally superior. I was going to say, no. like, I guess they had their own way of dealing with that. Yeah. Who's okay to sleep with and who's not? I'm but sure they had they very re- complicated internal yeah. politics. They realised they weren't for each other. Yeah. yeah. Obviously. Yeah. I think that's pretty clear. But even though they separated, they never actually officially divorced. So the depression was on its way, but Smith was still recording. She was recording with some of the biggest names in the business, including Louis Armstrong. Ooh. Who um, told this great story about how one day he needed change for a $100 bill. And he asked Bessie if she had change for a $100 bill. And she was like, yeah, sure. And she lifted up her skirt <laughs> under which she kept this apron full of money. Ah! And Louis Armstrong was like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I guess you've got plenty of change wow. for a $100 bill. So she, also, a $100 bill in the 1920s yes. would have been worth so much. Well, I think in that story, apparently that was Louis Armstrong's first $100 bill that he'd ever made. Oh. Yeah. So she and w- she's just like, yeah, fucking no worries. Yeah. Here, just, yeah. look at my apron full of cash. Yeah. Good luck with your career, Louis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she was living it up, right? Yeah. So Because as I said, she was making that money off of her traveling shows. And she reportedly was leading quite an extravagant lifestyle, nice clothes, nice jewelry, quite a lot of booze. We expect nothing less. But as we said, the too depression. Much booze. Oh, well, yeah, too much booze, but also yeah. the depression. So 
she had split with Jack and the depression had a massive impact on the music industry, mm. of course, because who mm. has fucking frivolous money to buy records no. now? No, right? that's right. But I really love the uh, – well, I think we've mentioned this before that like lipstick sales are recession-proof. Yes. Right? Like cosmetics are recession-proof. So no, people don't have enough money for records but people will still buy themselves lipstick as a treat. Yeah, actually the cosmetic industry is – one that we should delve into one <laughs> but of these days. One of these days, but not right this minute. But it's true. And because, you know, we've also touched on this before and I think, you know, we discussed this when we were talking about Anita Barber, for example, mm-hmm. with, the, with Weimar Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, like when the world's going to shit, people party. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's like everyone's fucking desperate, so let's just Let's have a good time and gr- try to forget all of our worries. Precisely. So it's not like music stopped. And obviously, mm. you know, we had the jazz age which was people desperately trying to cling on to this American dream. But at the same time, the decline in what you could purchase yeah. was huge and it almost sent companies like Columbia completely yeah. bankrupt. Well, because as I imagine, and this is also, this is just a guess, this is just me kind of going from the thoughts that are randomly popping into my head, but is this something that sort of, are we in prohibition, I guess, at the same time or is that finished by now? But I'm just thinking about things moving underground and like you said, people still want to party but maybe they don't have enough money Mm. Mm -hmm. to be buying a lot of records but collectively people, you know, can still gather and still have big parties and we know that in the 20s and 30s they did. Yeah, and often they'd have rent parties which was basically where if you couldn't pay your rent, you'd be like, hey, everyone, I'm having a party. I'm going to provide some alcohol. I'll provide some food. I've got a piano, so feel free to play it and we'll sing. And people would come to your party and you'd pass around a hat and people would put money in your hat so you could pay your rent. Oh, my God, amazing. I think rent parties like never went away. I think people might still do them now. They were huge in like Harlem. They're a massive thing in Harlem. That even started at this Mm. particular time as well. So it kind of was... Like, so I guess it's, it's a very, really kind of communal. Yeah. Like, and the idea that people will still find money for entertainment, for yeah. art, no matter what. And you know, this is why we shouldn't devalue the fucking arts. I know. Let's because not, yeah, yeah. Doesn't 100%. matter how much or how little money you have, you always want art. You always That's want right. to consume it. Try and take it away and see what happens to the world, people. Fucking listen, government. <laughs> this is a rant for a. Another time. Different podcast. So many rants for different times. <laughs> One of these days we'll make an episode and we'll call it The, the rant. rant for Different Times. Maybe we could put it on Patreon. The Rant. Sure. All right. We'll see. We'll see about that. <laughs> but also part and parcel of, you know, this changing world of the depression was the fact that swing was the new kid on the block. Yes, that it sure was, was. That was the new music style that mm-hmm. everyone was into. That kind of fit that sort of like let's pretend the world's not burning yeah. mentality. And blues were in decline because as Smith herself would say, I mean, who wants to listen to the blues when the world's already shit? Yeah, because you're being reminded of everything that's really terrible. Because as much as the blues can be very sexy, it's often about breakup and heartache and loss and, yeah, bad times. All those sorts of things. But Smith was a very versatile singer, so she was able to tap into this new style. Did she transition into jazz? Well, she didn't transition into jazz specifically as she went back to her roots in sort of vaudeville and and Broadway performing basically because people still, as we said, they still wanted to go out and see musicians. So even though those record sales declined. Yeah, they're still going to shows. She as a performer was still a draw card. And also in 1929, 
this is the year that she starred in her only film. Oh. Two. And now, thanks to the great fucking people at the US Library of Congress, <gasps> it was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, and you can watch the damn thing on YouTube anytime you like. For oh free. my God. Because also, if it was made in 1929, wouldn't it be out of copyright now? Well, out of copyright. <gasps> so just go on. Anytime you like and watch it, it was a two-reeler, so which means it just fit on two reels of tape. Yeah. And it's only about 15 minutes long. It's super short. Does she sing in it? She does. So it's called St. Louis Blues and it's basically just a little story they've made out of the lyrics of the song of the same name, which was a song written by W.C. Handy. And it, yeah, just kind of plays out the narrative of this song and she sings it and there's a choir that mm. sings in the background and she stars alongside a guy called Jimmy Mordecai who was a dancer and an actor and in the in the movie his character is called Jimmy the Pimp. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually a really, it's a really sad short film. Aww. It's genuinely sad because, I mean, the song she's singing is the blues Yeah, and the story it's the fucking blues, but it's really interesting because she's incredibly captivating. Yeah, and it's such a short film, but she's amazing in wow. it. She's terrific. I wonder why that was her only film. Do you know? Actually, no, I don't know why it was her only film. I guess because she went back to stage performance. Yeah. I'm not sure. Or maybe she wasn't a huge success. Maybe well. no, nobody loved her as much as I did. <laughs> I'm not sure, but. This was the only time that she appeared in a film and in this sort of narrative, the character played by Jimmy Mordecai is her unfaithful lover, of course, and there's this scene where Smith beats up the other woman uh-huh. and I think you get a great sense of how she actually would have been in a fucking fight. I can fight. see you trying to piece your words together. <laughs> like, like. <laughs> like essentially this is a film but it makes me know that I wouldn't want to come between her uh-huh. And, and anything and that she wants. Anything that she yeah. wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I can see. Right. Uh, because, I mean, there are reports of her um, hitting a guy over the head with a chair like, uh-huh. in her normal life. Wow. Like she was no. These are stories that seem to abound from women in the 1920s and 30s as well. Is Was it just a very violent time for both men and women? Like because Anita Barber was also not afraid yeah. to hit, hit men over the head with champagne glasses and chairs. Yeah, I don't know actually. That's an interesting thing. Well, I wonder as well how many of these are true stories and how many of these are rumours. Mm. And I think in also in regards to Smith and in regards to the blues In regards to any of that music, there's also a part of this that is really tied up with morality, right? Because you have to remember that there's segregation, obviously, and there's a contingency of the black community that really looked down on this kind of music Mm. because they saw this kind of music as reinforcing stereotypes about black folk as violent black folk as loose and immoral mm-hmm. and yeah. sinful because sure. yep. his music was considered sinful, sinful. Yeah, exactly yeah, yeah and this was at a time when a lot of people in the community they wanted to raise up you know they had this desire yeah. of raising up the african-american community and making it seem more sort of respectable yes. in the eyes of the yes. border you know, white population. Because I suppose it's also, it's a very passionate music as well. Like yeah. it's, it's so emotive. Yes, and it's so exactly. very much about the expression of things that aren't normally talked about, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And you can feel it. Like it's a music that you really feel yeah. in, that, in that way. But 
it's exactly those qualities that led to it being seen by some as yeah. corrupt, you yeah. know, a yeah. music that corrupts you. And actually there's this really great film from the 1950s that stars Nat King Cole and Eartha Kitt. Oh, swoon. Um, <laughs> fuck, Eartha Kitt's amazing. And it's based on the life of W.C. Handy, uh-huh. that composer that I mentioned before. Yeah. And it's about how he spent most of his life estranged from his Baptist minister father oh. because he went into writing yes, of course. that kind of music yeah. that was played in speakeasies. And so this music did tear mm. communities and apart. And she's the daughter of a Baptist minister as well, right? So like yeah. what happened, what would have happened had her parents, I mean, obviously it's they very tragic dead. that yeah. they were dead, but like <laughs> yeah. I imagine that if they weren't dead, she wouldn't have been what she was. And if she yeah. had pursued music still, then would that have caused tension within her family, I wonder? I don't know. Well, I guess we can never know. In terms of her siblings, they obviously didn't mind because mm. she kind of, basically paid for them yeah she sent them money and, and she well, kept two them of them are in the industry as well anyway right and yeah the two brothers yeah the two brothers and she basically set them up in a house and i think sadly they kind of may have sort of squandered all the money mm. that she sent to them and not you know kind of seen her as a bit of a, a cow that they were going to yeah, milk okay so i mean they had no problems with her singing yeah because it was making money yeah but there definitely was a contingent of the community that felt like this music was the devil mm-hmm. and it was going to make black folk look like they were sinful and evil yeah and it was never going to help them to raise up mm. their respectability in the eyes of the broader american yeah. public right and then ironically why people came along and stole yeah it. and they were like hey we like, like that we music. really like this we're gonna we're gonna do it but we're gonna get white people doing it not as well <laughs> and um we're gonna make millions off of that so. so it's this really interesting conundrum actually and you know art music tells us so much about the history mm. of social politics oh yeah it's not absolutely it's, it, there's oh no my way God. you can separate those absolutely not from each other never uh and so of course here it was it's hugely a part of the world that smith is working in but you can of course imagine how smith felt about that sort of yeah. version of events like she gave no fucks yeah she gave no <laughs> yeah. fucks if you liked her music or you didn't like it because she's music. selling out i imagine that if she were if there were stadiums to sell out she'd be selling she's selling out tents she's selling out theaters yeah, right like exactly. she doesn't care Yep, she doesn't give a shit. And there's no Twitter, so it's not like she has to deal with the, you know, trolls telling her how awful she is. Yeah. Oh, dear Lord. (laughs) Was the internet such a great invention? Who can say? Well, I mean, that's how you're listening to this podcast, so I suppose it was all right. (laughs) Anyway, now while I said that she had a skirt full of money and all those expenses, (laughs) all those expensive tastes. Yeah, yeah. um, As I said, she did get... Oh, the alcoholism. Yeah. Is this where we're going? Well... Look, she wasn't a complete alcoholic. Mm. She did like a lot of alcohol, but that wasn't her demise. It wasn't it, an ism. No, it wasn't an ism that I'm aware of. Okay. I don't know. I don't think it was an ism. Okay. I think she just. But, but where I are think you? what happened is with the alcohol. I wasn't going to talk oh, about alcohol. Okay, sorry. But I, I totally just. Well, I remembered you brought it up earlier. But I think that what that did was it played into her, perhaps her more violent. Yeah, that's right. That's kind of where this conversation started, wasn't it? Was that violence? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, there's many accounts of her being arrested for being drunk and disorderly. Right. Numerous times. <laughs> she was not shy of getting into mm. physical fights. And there's one account by uh, one of the singers that she worked with about an occasion where an audience member was getting a little bit too fresh with one of the chorus girls and Smith went to this girl's aid, started beating up the guy, like laying into him and he drew a knife (gasps) 
and shit. stabbed her in oh, the fuck. stomach. Holy shit. I know. Oh, my God. Like, thankfully, she recovered. But this was oh the my God. this was the extent of what she would do, right? So she was beating up on this guy enough that he was like, I have to stab this woman. Holy shit. Can you imagine Beyonce just like <laughs> intervening in a street fight and then getting stabbed in the stomach? Is this the equivalent of Beyonce intervening in a fight and getting stabbed in the stomach? I guess. I suppose. I don't know. Let's hope it never happens. Like the queen of today's pop stardom just like getting down and dirty in the streets. Pretty much. The mega, mega, mega star that is – because she's like basically the biggest – She is. She's the biggest star of her time. Yeah. So she is the Beyonce of the 20s. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. She's at the top. She's peak. Yeah. And I don't think it gets more peak really than – no. Queen Bay. That's why she, right? <laughs> so, yeah, maybe it's very similar to, yes, to her having street fights. Okay. So, um, <laughs> and, I mean, this was the sort of stuff that was actually reported on in newspapers. Mm. So it's Oh, the tabloids would have eaten it up. But, I mean, it lends it truth, yeah. I suppose. You know, it's been documented there. So a lot of what we hear about her is rumour mm. or, you know, those legend stories that have been spilled out into the world. But this actually did happen, like yeah, so yeah. many of the other stories with her. Um, <laughs> we actually do have some proof. So as I said, though, the popularity of the blues was really impacting Smith's popularity, like decline in the popularity of the blues. And producer John Hammond, who was one of the biggest producers of the day, and he Ended up working with the likes of Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, yeah, Bruce right. Springsteen. At the time, closer to Smith, he was working with Billie Holiday and Aretha Franklin mm. and loads and loads of big names. So he's, you know, like he's just he's a, a proper producer yeah, man. He's like a humble brag kind of guy. Yeah, And he is also quite well known apparently for embellishing his stories a little bit. So who knows if this is true <laughs> or not. But he said that in the early 1930s he found Bessie working in a speakeasy in Philadelphia in 1932. So she'd had a little bit of a, a fall from grace. She wasn't doing the big shows anymore mm. because of that decline in blue mm. in the popularity of blues. She was still working. She was still making money as a performer but I guess sort of like those really huge draw in the crowd yeah. kind of days were behind her. And he asked her if she would record for him and she agreed. And he said, look, I've got this great band lined up for you. I've got this terrific pianist. I've got this terrific guy on drums. And apparently she said, no, I don't need a drummer. I make my own beat. Ah, This was her. She was like very, very, okay, very, very certain that drummer was. She's going to beatbox. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Drummer was out the window. She was not having any of it. But she went on to um, agree and to sign up with him to record what actually ended up being her last recording in 1933. And a week after she stepped out of the recording studio from having made her last album, the 18-year-old Billie Holiday stepped into the same recording studio to record her first album. Wow. So it's a real changing of the guard. Yeah. You can see, you know, the out with the old, in with the new. And Billie Holiday did credit Bessie Smith as one of her biggest influences. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you can see the impact that she had on the later generations of singers that came through. So Smith spent the next couple of years still touring clubs and theatres, mainly in New York. She appeared in shows on Broadway, as I said before. And by this time, she was in a fairly stable relationship with a man named Richard Morgan. And by now she'd made something like 170 recordings. Whoa. And pretty much all of these still survive today. That's actually really amazing for this time. Yeah, many of them have been remastered. 
But Smith's life sadly was a short one because she would be dead by the age of 43. And the circumstances around her death have been debated basically since it happened. Really? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So in September of 1937, she was traveling in a car with her partner, Richard, Uh and he was driving and things are a little murky about what happened, but it may have been (gasps) that he tried to overtake a truck and he misjudged its speed and his speed and he slammed into the side of it. Smith, yeah, Smith was either thrown from the car or she crawled out. But the the oh. first people on the scene were a doctor and his friend who was in the car, which I think is actually just by pure chance. Wow! And they arrived on the scene and they found her basically lying in the middle of the road. She had probably had her right arm <gasps> resting on the windowsill oh, at the time of the no. crash because it was basically oh, completely no. severed. Oh no! Yeah, oh, and no. she'd lost a lot of blood, but she was still alive. Oh, so, you can't see me, but I'm all squished up in a ball. Yeah, it's not a nice story. So the doctor and his friend, they moved her off to the side of the road while they waited for an ambulance to arrive because they had managed to call an ambulance from a house nearby. And while they were waiting, another car approached. (gasps) Oh, no. Wait, what? It Apparently, it didn't see what was going on. Oh, no. Oh, no. And it smashed straight into the car of the doctor who'd stopped to help them. And it sent it ricocheting off into the side of the road. Oh, fuck. But it didn't hit Smith. Oh, shit. Close. shit's sake. Close, but oh didn't Oh, my hit God. Her. I know. I'm on the edge of my seat here. Come on. So then the story is that two ambulances arrived because one was the ambulance that the doctor's friend had gone and called for at a mm-hmm. nearby house and the other was the ambulance that the truck driver had called. Now, the truck driver, he didn't stop. Apparently, <gasps> he didn't stop. But he'd seen that something had happened and he'd driven on and pulled over further up and called for an ambulance, right? And he hadn't seen the victims. So he, so he didn't He didn't stop. see to know. like. No. Oh. He basically went on and he was like, look, I think maybe there might be some casualties back on the road. I don't oh, know. Maybe, maybe you might want to send an ambulance. Yeah, okay. Oh, thanks. Thanks, yeah, thanks so man. much. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Good job. But he hadn't seen the victims. So something that's really important here is the fact that, of course, because there was segregation, mm. there were separate black and white ambulances. Oh, fuck off. So Get the fuck out. I know. So the truck driver had called for a white <gasps> ambulance because he just fuck assumed. The fuck off. Oh, my God. That's disgusting. I'm sorry. This is where I'm like, okay, sorry. No, continue. Okay. I'm just, I'm disgusted. I like it. Please continue. Keep dealing with (laughs) the implications of that. Keep dealing with your age. and your fucking healthcare system, honestly. Keep keep dealing with your age. So he'd called for a white ambulance because he just assumed that the victims were white for some reason. Because aren't all people white? Because all people, this is the default. It's the default, right? Sure. Yeah. Whereas, Mm -hmm. of course, Mm -hmm. the doctor's friend who'd called for the ambulance had called for a black ambulance. Now, I don't know how you do that separately, but I guess you used to have to tell them over the phone. I guess you had to tell them who were the victims are black or white. Exactly. Fuck. Oh, my God. I know. As if, yes. Oh, sorry. No. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, please continue. Tell the story. Yep. I'll deal with my disgust internally. So one of each ambulance arrived. And the story goes that Bessie died because she re- refused admittance to a whites-only hospital upon arrival. And this has become quite a popular version of her death or the story around her death. But that's probably not the case because no one at the time, especially an ambulance driver, would have even thought to put her in the white ambulance mm. and take her to a white hospital. Mm-hmm. Like they would have turned up and been like, oh, oh, well, she's black so she's got to go we'll, to black we'll wait for the other guys to come yeah essentially they would have been like well sorry she's dying on the on the side, on of, the the road. side of the road but she's the wrong skin color well, we so can't even put her though in we're house. medically trained and we're yeah. ready and we are we yeah. can technically help her we're not going to put her in our van to. yeah 
and we'll have to wait for the other people to arrive. Shit. They'll have to be the ones to deal with this, right? So it's more than likely that this is actually not what happened. Mm. She didn't get refused admittance to a whites-only hospital. And, in fact, she was ta- more than likely taken to the what was known as the G.T. Thomas Afro-American Hospital. Her arm, wherever she ended up, her arm was amputated, mm. but she died later that morning from the rest so of her injuries that she'd yeah. sustained. So the reason why the version of events is important to know why there's those two sort of versions is because the version where she was denied admittance to uh, the whites-only hospital circulated as a rumour that led to, uh, which quite possibly Hammond, the producer Hammond mm. had spread himself right. because he liked to beat up story. And it ended up inspiring Edward Albee's 1959 play called The Death of Bessie Smith. Wow. So there's actually a play out wow. there in the world that's which about I ha- this. Yeah, which I haven't read or seen, but it's yeah. entirely based on this Jeez. series of events. And I assume looks at race relations. Yeah. I would say. I would that imagine that like, that's probably a key theme. Yeah, I would mm. say that seems like a logical mm. thing that this play would deal yeah. with. So apparently her funeral was enormous mm. and there's speculation or guesstimation, uh-huh. as you like to say, that anywhere between five, seven and 10,000 people Oof. attended her funeral. Wow. But in a final twist of general shittiness, Jack, remember her estranged husband? Uh-huh. He pocketed the money <gasps> that was intended to buy her headstone for her grave. What? And she lay in an unmarked grave until 1970. Holy shit. So, no, sorry, but there must have been more money around. Like, how much can a headstone cost? But he had other things to spend it on. So like, did he inherit her estate because they never divorced? I assume he must have because yeah. otherwise somebody else would have been Surely in charge of the headstone. Surely somebody else could have organised a headstone. Well, Lauren... In 1970, somebody did buy her yeah. a headstone. Who? Who? Do you want to take a fucking guess at who bought her a headstone in Bill, 1970? Billy Holiday? No. Who? No. Okay. So two people went yeah. in to buy this. Yeah. The first is a woman named Juanita Green. And okay, I was going to – oh, that was my second guess. Yeah, sure. You were so going to <laughs> guess Juanita, weren't you? Now, Juanita Green is interesting. I think she may have worked for Smith at one point as a domestic, helping her, and Smith apparently once told her not to bother becoming a singer because she couldn't hold a note. Oh, yeah. oh and look, sometimes honesty is the best, best policy. policy. And the other person who went in on buying this headstone was Janice fucking Joplin. Janice Joplin! Who saw Famous that? blues singer. Who the fuck saw that coming? Well – Janis Joplin famously sang blues. I know, that's right. But <laughs> you didn't guess it. No, I wouldn't. She's not the first person that would have come to mind. No, no. exactly. So, but I, but I can see the how connection. Smith would have been an influence for Joplin. Well, apparently she was a massive influence yeah, for Janis yeah. Joplin, and apparently Joplin, you know, noted this many, many times. Yeah. and this is what led to her wanting to eventually be able to actually yeah. mark. Yeah, Smith's grave. So checks out. That makes sense. Checks out. Totally checks out. So posthumously, Smith has been honoured in the Grammy Hall of Fame and the National Women's Hall of Fame. There was even a postage stamp with her likeness on it in 1994. Nice. So, and as I said, there was the HBO series mm. with Queen Latifah. Um, so it's not like Smith has completely disappeared from the history books. It's just that for whatever reason, she hasn't become one of those yeah. household names like... Ella Fitzgerald or, yeah. or Billie Holiday is. And I wonder if that just is because perhaps jazz 
was maybe more of a popular mm. form of yeah. music than blues. And I, and I guess as well, it's just that sort of decade or two probably too early for really good quality surviving mm, recordings. Yeah. Like it might be that it's sort of just a little bit too old sounding yeah. and maybe it's not as like, – like whereas I guess people like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald are still listened to because their music is still – like I guess the quality of those recordings is still very good. Yeah. They're, I mean you said that uh, Smith's work has been remastered but yes. – you know, yeah. I'm just, I don't know. I wonder if it's just maybe because it's just that slightly little bit too early technologically. I, th- I definitely think that there's truth to that because I think as well, you know, her early recordings were sort of like acoustic-y kind of mm. recordings whereas by the time we get some of those other singers, it's I guess more electronic or more sort of layered, more mm-hmm. controlled, whereas the, the earliest ways of recording music was basically just to get everyone in the room and mm. to play the song, which, yeah. you know, would end in a lot of graininess, a mm. lot of feedback. Mm a lot of loop and apparently as well a lot of these early recordings didn't even do her voice justice yeah and it's not until you listen to the remastered ones where you actually do find that that whole richness of her Mm -hmm. voice is layered into them Mm. and this is I mean this is something that's been sort of checked out by the last sort of surviving people of that generation who, who had heard her in person who did know what she really genuinely sounded like the difference between those early recordings and then the later remastered versions, which are much closer to, yeah. to her, her actual voice and the actual tenor and tone of her voice. So I do think that this, as you say, this may very well play into the reason why she's not one of those more immediately recognisable mm. sort of figures of the history of music. But, of course, the other thing, as I said, is it means um, you can go online and you can watch that short film in mm. which she starred, St Louis Blues. Um, you can find heaps of her music online. You could buy her music. I mean, I don't know who gets the money for her yeah. music that you buy <laughs> yeah. anymore. Somebody's somewhere, I suppose. Maybe Columbia still own the rights. I don't maybe. know. I've I don't got know. no idea. But she's definitely, look, Obviously, in my research of this episode, I've been listening to her on yeah, repeat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she's, look, she is brilliant. I'm I mean, super keen to listen to her now. She was not called the Empress of the Blues for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I'm probably going to go and put her on once we stop recording. Excellent. And uh, listen to some Bessie Smith. Yeah. And, of course, over the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll also try and share some stuff on the social media yes. as well. Uh, I'll try and see if I can find a little snippet of the film that maybe we can put mm. on Instagram, something like that. Because, as you say, hopefully it's a lot of copyright and no one's <laughs> going to sue us. Um, and, of course, that leads us to saying that if – if you'd like to, you can follow us on the social media. Well, you can medias. find us on those some of those same channels. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Spotify. So why not like and subscribe? Maybe write us a review if you like what you hear. If you don't like what you hear, don't write a review. It's yeah. fine. Why not? Yeah, it's up to you. Good. And as we mentioned at the start of the show as well, Patreon. You yeah. can also find more of this shit on Only Patreon. $2 a month. I shouldn't have called it shit. That's a bargain. No, but it's anyway, good stuff. It's good, good stuff. stuff. And we have some new Patreon exclusive content that's just come out yeah. recently as well. Yeah, so that's correct. get on board. We do. Holds in history. And if you like a Deviant Women t-shirt or a pin, you can jump on Etsy. You can buy them there. We'll ship them out to you. Super easy. Then you wear them. Yeah. And you'll look great. Yes. And everyone will be like, hey, I like that t-shirt. That t-shirt's great. And what the writing's about? upside down. What, yeah. why? why? What is that Tell about? Us. Yeah. Share the, share the story of us with your friends. Share the story of us. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, we need to say a very big thank you to Brendan Davies for the sound. To India Hui for the music. And to Dan, our executive producer. And that's all from us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.